You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. And let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 11. You know, sometimes we focus so much on the Word of God here that people who are not very familiar with it can almost feel ashamed. They might even hear me ask you to turn to Mark chapter 11 and think to themselves, I don't know where Mark is and almost have a a shame that they experience. But please don't ever sense shame that you don't know where a passage is. Just, just go to that passage through the direction or instruction of, of myself or of your small group leaders or of friends and become familiar with this book because it is this book that holds the key to eternal life. It is this book that the Apostle Peter says holds within it everything that we need for life and godliness. And so the Gospel of Mark is in the New Testament. It is the second book of the New Testament. If you can find Matthew, you can find Mark. Just keep flipping to the right, and you will get to the Gospel of Mark. In fact, if you don't have a Bible, just look in the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and find Mark chapter 11 on page 847. Let me read the passage, and then I'll explain to you why it's important for you and for me this morning, and then we will unpack it together. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. 
Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What are some areas of your life you would like assurance? Judging from some of you and what you're wearing, you would like assurance that this will not be the last Chiefs game of the year. Others of you might have a political bent, and your assurance guarantee would be that the midterms go in the direction that you would like for your party to have them go. Others of you are thinking from a a health perspective, and you're tired of all of these letters of the Greek alphabet that are assigned to variants of COVID. Others of you are paying attention to the economy, and you're seeing that the Fed is probably going to provide some direction for where they think the economy is heading, and you're hoping that the results of that will provide stability for our economy. What, What areas of your life right now Would you like a guarantee of assurance? And you know, in all of those topics, in all of those categories, we have experts that are gathering information. We have projections. We have poll numbers. But we don't have guaranteed assurance, do we? It reminds me how much we as humans want to have assurance. I was sitting on an airplane exchanging the pleasantries with the man sitting next to me. And of course, you get to that point where you ask them what they do and then they return the favor. And when I told him I was a pastor, he very quickly told me that he was Catholic as though that would somehow change the direction of the conversation. It did. Because what I understand about Catholicism is that one differentiator is this question that I asked him. I asked him, do you know 100% when you die that you will be in heaven? His response to me was, I don't think anybody can know, can you? That opened the door to further conversation. Because the answer to that question is absolutely 100% yes. You can know, you can be assured that you will go to heaven when you draw your last breath. Now, some of you in here are affirming that, and I can see by your nods of confidence, you know. I pray this study will just reinforce that assurance. Others of you are sitting here and saying, I I, I know I'm a Christian, but but I struggle with that assurance. What I pray is that this study will provide you with tools that will allow you to walk away to share with the rest of us that you know 100% that you are going to heaven. And then there are others of you who would sit here and say, "I, I don't even know that I'm a Christian. I certainly do not have assurance that when I die... I will spend eternity in heaven, and my prayer for you is that you will be shaken to your core. Because if you are shaken to your core, you will be at a place where you can hear the words of Jesus, see the path to the gospel, and walk out of here with an assurance that you are going to heaven. The big idea in your notes is what we will look toward as we study this passage, and that is true faith will bear fruit 
starting with the proper roots and then bearing fruit. Four characteristics of true faith that I would invite you to take notes with so that the mind can connect to the heart. Number one, true faith will bear fruit. True faith will bear fruit. Jesus has had a night to think about what he saw in the temple. Look back at verse 11. And Jesus entered Jerusalem. This was after the triumphal entry. Ringing in his ear were likely the cries of the crowd. Back in verse 9, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus had just experienced the crowds in a frenzy. Declaring that they recognized him as king. Which was significant for this generation. In fact, it was significant for the Jews because for generations, the prophets had been prophesying about a king all the way back to Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of the prophets. They had been telling the Jews of their day that a king was coming who would reconcile humanity, reconcile creation, reconcile the people of God because the people of God were a rebellious people. And the prophets were constantly reminding them, you are rebellious, you have rejected your king, you have rejected your creator, you have rejected your covenant-keeping God. Turn back to him, and you know what? You won't turn back to him, because one day the king will be the one who will turn your hearts back to the king of kings and lord of lords. And it seems at this point that the Jews were becoming united in respecting him and responding to him as the king. They seemed to be demonstrating that they were king followers. And yet, Jesus looked around the temple and he saw something that he wanted to sit on for a night. And now as he makes his way back to the temple with an objective in mind that we'll see in a few verses... He comes across a tree as he is hungry. Look at verse 12. He came from Bethany. We'll put a map up on the screen to just show you a little bit about where Jesus is headed. Bethany is down in the bottom right corner of the map. He's making his way through the top of the Mount of Olives, going through forests. And as he is making his way into Jerusalem to the temple, he's hungry. Isn't that awesome? I've had people come up to me through our study of the gospel of Mark and they said, I I want you to show me in the gospel of Mark, where, where do we see Jesus' humanity? Well, here is a perfect example of that. It says that Jesus was hungry. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us that we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with us, but in every point where we are tempted, he himself has been tempted. Jesus is hungry And it says from a distance that he sees a full-bloom fig tree. We'll put a picture up on the screen of a fig tree. You can see there are a lot of leaves. These fig trees were used by the, the Jews to provide shade, but also to provide food. Now, since most of us don't have fig trees in our backyard, let me explain a little bit more about what an ancient Near East fig tree would have been known for. The fig tree actually produced fruit twice in a season. In about April and May, it would begin to bloom. 
It would bloom and begin to come together in those blooms to provide these pods that would provide nutrition. The harvest would actually take place in June or in the beginning of the summer. In fact, that's why Mark will say it was not the season for figs. We'll get to why that's significant in just a moment. There would be a second crop that would then be harvested in early fall. Some scholars have found documents from the ancient world that actually those who lived in this community preferred the blooming fruit over the ripe fruit. So Jesus, from a distance, sees this tree that Mark tells us is in full leaf, and he expects from that condition that there will be these pods. I think that's interesting. Because Jesus comes to the tree to examine it. In fact, the word is interesting in the original. It means to examine with care. He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. I got to tell you, I've read this many, many times. And I've always been puzzled by this. I share the perspective of some scholars that we could be tempted to see Jesus as a spoiled brat, couldn't we? I mean, he comes up to this tree, it's in full leaf, he's looking, and he's, he's looking very carefully, he's pulling back the leaves, he might even have climbed the tree, we don't know. But when he finds that there are none of these pods, he curses the tree. Now, the reason for that is because a fig tree should have been producing fruit. A fig tree in full leaf should have had fruit on it. And in so doing, it was really an agricultural hypocrite. My family and I had visited an apple orchard this last fall. This apple orchard was awesome. There were, there were different rows that had signs at the row, and it told us what breed or what type of apple tree it was. And there was Jonathan, there was Golden Delicious. My favorite were the Fujis. I don't know why, maybe it's because I like the tropics. But when I tasted those, they were amazing. And I remember realizing, hey, these are the ones that I want to put in my bag. But what was fascinating is that that row of trees had very few Fijis. It's probably because many other Midwesterners like myself loved the Fuji. Now, what's fascinating about this, even if you're not an an agricultural expert, is that you don't go down the row of Jonathan's to find Fujis. The tree produces its own fruit. The Fuji tree provides... Fuji apples. Friends, this is a reminder to us that what Jesus is doing here is not just looking for something to satisfy his physical hunger. How would I explain that? Well, look what it says at the end of verse 14. His disciples heard it. This is not about Jesus being hungry, ultimately. Jesus is providing an object lesson. The object lesson is what the tree is, must, and will produce its fruit. When Jesus found nothing but leaves, he he cursed it. He cursed it because he was providing an object lesson for those disciples, but also for us. 
Friends, that object lesson is that gospel trees provide gospel fruit. In fact, here's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. A healthy tree will be known by its fruit even if it is not bountiful in certain seasons. Isn't that encouraging? I've always wondered, why did Mark, Matthew doesn't include this, why does Mark say at the end of verse 13, it was not the season for figs? I think there's two reasons. Number one, because he was writing to people who would have understood the agricultural context. They they would have understood that, that from a distance, if this was June, Jesus would have been able to actually see the ripe fruit from a distance. Jesus actually had to go to the tree because it was not the season for fruits. It was it, for figs. It was not the time for them to be harvested. So if there was going to be fruit on the tree, he would have to search for it. And beloved, there's some seasons of our lives when fruit has to be searched for, but it will always be there. Let me give you three reminders for us because the New Testament constantly uses this agricultural symbolism to describe the life of a believer. Number one, true faith will bear fruit according to the right definition. The right definition of fruit. Listen, gospel fruit is not a religious fruit. There are plenty other religions in the world that would say that the way that you can tell whether or not you are an adherent to this religion is by going to these services, by doing these types of deeds, by giving this amount of money. But that is not the fruit that the New Testament speaks of. The New Testament speaks of a fruit, beloved, that at its core is a value fruit. At its core, value is the gospel fruit that it is produced by a transformed life. It is a life that places value on Christ above all, that recognizes that all that this world has to offer is intended to only deliver so much satisfaction. The only thing in life that delivers the ultimate satisfaction is Christ in Christ alone. And when that is the core of our fruit, then we produce fruit that Galatians says is at a heart level, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith. Now, of course, there will be outward evidence of this. Of course, regular fellowship with believers will be evidence of this. Yes, discipleship will be evidence of this. Yes, tithes and offerings will be evidence of this. But listen, that is not the ultimate fruit. The ultimate fruit is at the core, and it is a value fruit. Number two, not only is it the right definition, but it is the right nutrition. The right nutrition is provided in Psalm 1. One through three, it is that tree that is planted in the streams of water. The streams of water are the word of God, regular fellowship with God through prayer, a dependence on the Holy Spirit as we studied last week, a connectedness to the local body of believers where we are constantly encouraging and equipping one another. That is the streams, beloved, in our hearts Jeremiah 17, 9 say, are desperately wicked. We need this stream. True faith will bear fruit according to the right definition with the right nutrition, but number three, in the right orchard. 
There's a reason why Psalm 1-1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sit in the seat of sinners or stand in the way of the scoffers. Friends, the right orchard is when we are communing with brothers and sisters in Christ. What does Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 say? We are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves as is the manner of some, but we are to stir up good works in one another in love. Beloved church is so much more than what we are doing right now, but it is nothing less. It is making sure that we are in the right orchard, encouraging one another to have the right nutrition, looking in each other's lives for the right definition of fruit. True faith bears authentic fruit. We can see that in the object lesson that Jesus provides with the fig tree. We're not done with that yet, but we'll come back to it in a moment. Number two, true faith will value correctly. True faith will value correctly. We, we come, come to a, a passage in a story that we're probably familiar with if you've read the Gospels. Jesus cleansing the temple. Let me just give you a little historical background here. There were shops that were typically set up on the Mount of Olives, historians tell us. The reason for that is because if you were a a man that was making his way to Jerusalem for the three major festivals of the year, you were required to offer a sacrifice. That sacrifice, according to the Mosaic law, in fact, I was reading that this morning in Leviticus, had to be perfect. It had to be without blemish. It had to be blameless. And so the Jews of their day were just like us of our day. And if you had a a long journey and you could pick something up right there at the place, you would do that. In fact, why would you go to all of the work to travel tens of miles, hundreds of miles with a sheep that the priest would say is not blameless? So they would just travel to Jerusalem and they would stop at the shops on their way to Jerusalem to pick up their sacrifices. But by this point, there's rabbinical documents that show that it had been moved, the shops had been moved into the court of the Gentiles. That was the outer court of the temple. This was for convenience sake, but it was also for the corruption of the Sanhedrin, the priestly caste of the Jewish world. And by this time, some historians tell us that the Sanhedrin would actually have the people charge up to 16 times the value of what the sacrifices would actually have been cost, would have costed. There was much corruption. There was much distraction. How could the Gentiles have actually worshipped without distraction when there's all of this chaos going on in the temple precincts? That's the scene that we now have as we bridge back to the historical context. And so Jesus comes to Jerusalem, verse 15. He enters the temple, and then he begins to do something that seems to be uncharacteristic as we've studied the Gospel of Mark. As we've studied the Gospel of Mark, we've seen a Jesus who touches the lepers, don't we? We see a Jesus that while he would confront demons and while he would confront even his own disciples, he's really a merciful and compassionate and under control man. But it says in verse 15 that he began to drive out 
It's actually the verb that occurs many times in the gospel of Mark to drive, describing his driving out of demons. He is getting rid of these individuals. He is making sure that they are no longer in this place. And there's four groups that if we look at it and we're familiar with it, we might gloss over what I think Mark's point was in including them. I'm going to give you these four groups and ask the team to put definitions up on the screen. The first one are those who sold. The word sold means to exchange products or services for valuable consideration. That means I have a product or a service, but but I'm going to sell it to you based on a value that I place on it. Then he also drives out those who buy. Isn't that interesting? These are not just the Sanhedrin. These are not just the people at the booth. These are actually the pilgrims who are buying the sacrifices. Those who buy are those who acquire valued possessions or services in exchange for money. That means that I value the product or service that you have, and I'm willing to get rid of the currency and the money that I've earned. The third group is the money changers. Those were people who exchanged currency according to the value established by the changer. I have my money, you have yours, and I establish a value on my money and extract yours. I hope you can start to see there's a common denominator here, and that common denominator is value, which brings us to the fourth group. He he turned over the seats of those who sold pigeons. I actually was studying this very chapter this morning. Isn't that amazing how God works? Friend, let me just really quick give you a a little uh, commercial for reading the Bible daily. When you read the Bible daily, it's not just to check a box. God has something for you. And more often than not, when you read the Bible daily, what he does is he he puts that memory, he puts the memory of that at the front of your mind. And, And there's often times during the day when God will give you an experience where what you read will actually interact with what you're experiencing. And this morning, I did not know this, but the very chapter of Leviticus that is foundational for this, I read. And that is when you come to Jerusalem to offer your sacrifice, if you don't have enough money to buy a sheep, then you can buy turtle doves or pigeons. And what I want you to see in this was that this was the only sacrifice available to the poor. Leviticus 12, verse 8. And interestingly enough, this was the sacrifice of Mary and Joseph when they dedicated Jesus at the temple. See, for the poor, they they valued sacrifice enough that they, they were even willing to buy these pigeons and turtle doves. We begin to see the common denominator. What what Jesus is doing here is he's actually homing in on the value that the Jews were placing on God and on his character. It had gotten to a place where it was corrupt. It had gotten to a place where it was convenient. And if I was a really good pastor, I'd come up with a third C, but I can't. They'd also come to a place where they were willing to be distracted. Oh, friends, do you see the parallels in our own lives? 
How many times is God in our lives about convenience? How many times in our lives do we allow the mundane and the routine to be distracting? How many times in our lives do we, do we value the horizontal so highly that it eclipses the value we place on God? We were having conversations as a family yesterday. We were talking about nice things. And we were reminding one another that there's nothing wrong with having nice things in life, but always remember it will never completely satisfy Nothing that this world has to offer will have you in a perpetual, satisfied state. It will always leave you wanting more. It's because Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. The only thing that will satisfy are the things of eternity. Jesus is homing in on the value that the Jews were placing on the character of God and on the things of this world. How do I know that? Look look at what Jesus does in verse 17. He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? Now, what's interesting about this is that Jesus is quoting an Old Testament passage. Would you turn back to Isaiah 56? Remember, in the New Testament, oftentimes the authors or the person that's quoting it will will set up an Old Testament reference by saying it is written or this was to fulfill. And that helps us to know there's something from the Old Testament that is being cited. Sometimes, however, it, it actually isn't going to be as clear as that. But in this particular case, Jesus says, it is written. We go back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 56 is where we go. Remember, though, whenever there's a quote of the Old Testament, the New Testament authors consider the context that they're quoting from. The context of Isaiah 56 is is very interesting. It actually is describing how that there will be foreigners, there will be people outside of the ethnic people of God that will actually be genuine followers of God, and there will be people who are sons and daughters ethnically who are not. Isn't that interesting? And what the Lord says to expose the Jews of Isaiah's day is, listen, it does not matter the color of your skin, amen? It does not matter your line or your heritage. It does not matter your political affiliation. What matters is your value. And what he says in Isaiah 56 is, there will be eunuchs. There will be foreigners who will be considered the people of God because they actually follow Sabbath. Now, what's interesting is Sabbath was very important in the Mosaic Law. In fact, Exodus chapter 31, I believe it is, talks about the fact that if you do not follow Sabbath according to the law, you can be executed. And what had happened by the time of Isaiah's day is that the Jews had gotten to a place where they were manipulating the law to make it convenient for themselves. Sounds like what was happening in Jesus' day. And Isaiah is saying... There will be a day when it does not matter what your ethnicity is. What only matters is that you put the ultimate value in your life on God and on your relationship with him. And when that happens, 
Verse 6, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord. You see, this is at a heart level. And to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, revealing what the value is that they place on God in their lives. Verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer, listen to this, for all peoples. That's awesome. See, see, what's happening is Jesus is reminding the Jews of his day just what Isaiah was reminding the Jews of his day. And that is relationship with God is not an ethnicity issue. It's a faith issue. It's a value issue. Jesus quotes this to expose the Jews of his day. He then goes on to quote another passage that he doesn't introduce quite the way that he does Isaiah 57. He says that you, verse 17 in Mark 11, have made my house a den of robbers. That passage is Jeremiah 7. And it's an interesting context. In in Jeremiah's day, much like Isaiah's day, there was a lot going on with the words, but little if nothing going on with the heart. And the people were coming to Jerusalem, just like Jesus and the disciples were. And they were coming into the temple and they would say three times, this is the temple of God. This is the temple of God. This is the temple of God. Outwardly worshiping, but in their hearts, they were wicked They were pursuing their own desires. They were using religion as a crutch and a path to favor. Jeremiah exposes them and says, listen, you have made the temple a den of robbers. People who are wanting something from God without giving him what he requires. Friend, is that you? Are you here this morning wanting favor from God, but not willing to give him what he requires? Jesus is exposing the Jews, the religious leaders, what is going on in the temple. What he saw was corrupt business. What he he saw was distractions from worship. See, time and truth were going hand in hand. Let me ask the team to put up a quote up on the screen. The Christian life is not do so you can access the who, but value the who with the privilege of the do. Don't don't get lost in in the weak sauce words that I put up there. The point I hope you get. See, so so often, see, religion is that we do so that we can access the who, but, but biblical Christianity is we are so enraptured with the who. We, we value the who, which is Jesus Christ, so much that it is our privilege to do. Did, did you come this morning because this is your privilege? I, I get to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. I get to lift up my, my voice as, as best as I possibly can with words of worship to my God. I get to learn more about God's character. I get to engage with Christ. The Holy Spirit is in this place in a very unique way when his people gather. I'm privileged to do this. Is, is that why you're here? Is that why I'm preaching? 
Oh, friends, what Jesus is exposing in the temple is really an issue of value. The the religious leaders had pronounced their decision on what value they placed on Jesus. Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. The crowds are still, they're still considering. The crowds, verse 18, are astonished at his teaching and and they're still working through it. But beloved, don't, don't be working through it. Do you place ultimate value on Christ? If not, would you do that today? True faith will value correctly. Number three, true faith will be rooted. True faith will be rooted. Verse 20, uh, let me just quickly say, Mark is actually using a sandwich effect here. The sandwich effect is he'll introduce a part of the story, then he'll depart from it and talk about something else, and then he'll come back to the original story. And what he's doing is he's putting it all together like an awesome sandwich. So so verse 20 reveals that this was not ultimately about Jesus' hunger and the fig tree not bearing fruit. There's an object lesson. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree, but look what it says, withered away to its roots. Let me put a picture up on the screen. Here's, Here's two contrasting trees. One is a healthy tree, one is a dead tree. The, the dead tree is not just has some dead leaves, this is actually dead because the roots are dead. And what Mark is exposing is that the tree that Jesus had withered was withered to its roots. Now, now what's going to happen here is Jesus is going to start to say some things that have been very misunderstood through the years, have been very, very misapplied, and have been confusing to people who have tried to understand what Jesus is saying. Ask for whatever you want, no matter how impossible it is, he will do it. Name it and claim it. That's not what Jesus is saying. Let me actually show you what Jesus is saying. It's in this phrase. In verse 22, Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Would you please circle that? That is the root. And from a grammar perspective, it's an interesting, it's an object, it's a genitive of object. And why is that important? Because a genitive usually showed possessive, possession. So, so literally, if you're going to translate this, it is have the faith of God, but because it's objective, it emphasizes the object of the faith. That is important, beloved. This is, this is the root. It is God. It is not our faith. See, the name it and claim it people would say, if you just have enough faith, you can move mountains and throw them into the sea. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is actually using an idiom just like he had used a couple chapters before saying that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's showing that there's an idiom going on here. There, there is, there is a, a reality in prayer that if you pray according to God's will, even though horizontally something is impossible, God will do it. But the key is God's will. The object is God. It is his character. Don't get caught up in the horizontal. Get caught up in the vertical. And see, what Jesus is saying in response to Peter, Peter is like, Rabbi, look, there's a horizontal reality here that's amazing. And Jesus moves him to the vertical. Have faith be rooted in God. And when you are rooted in God himself, when you are infatuated by God's character, when you're an expert in God's character, which that's actually what this means, have faith in God, be an expert in all things God. 
I love this because we can all grow in this, can't we? I love the Civil War. I, I've, I've seen the movies. I've read books. I've even, even reenacted in a Civil War battle in Lexington. I love the Civil War, but there's always something to learn. I was listening to a podcast by Al Mohler, Thinking in Public, where he was unpacking the complicated life of Robert E. Lee. And I was hearing so many things that I'd never heard before, so many things that were causing me to think and connect dots in ways that I'd never thought before. And this is a great reminder, beloved. You never get to a place in this life where you fully comprehend God. Keep studying. Keep connecting. But, but here's the reality. So oftentimes, and especially here at Ascend, we say we want to go deeper. Yes, but not deeper for knowledge's sake, deeper for his sake. And listen, deep is not just gaining knowledge. It's not just gaining truths that, ooh, I never knew that about fig trees. That's not deeper. Deeper is connecting the dots to see how God's plan comes together to point us to his character and to Christ. That's deeper. And that's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. Have faith in God. Study God's character. Know God's character so that whoever says to this mountain, be moved into the sea. Whoever prays the impossible prayer, as long as it is according to God's will, no matter how impossible it seems, it will be done. But the key is God's will. And, and then he says, in verse 25, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. Why does he do this? Why does he go from asking these amazing things of God to forgiveness? Because exactly what Nathan Scroggins said the first Sunday of 2022, we are never more like the character of God when we forgive as we are forgiven. You want to be able to give evidence that you have faith in God? It's not about how much theology you know. It's are you able to forgive as you have been forgiven? See, true faith, beloved, is anchored in the character of God. It is rooted. Number four, true faith will recognize authority. What we read in verse 27 may be easy for us to gloss over, but with the historical context, this is fascinating. They came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. Who had just been planning to destroy Jesus? Well, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Who had Jesus prophesied three times before that they would actually come and, and arrest him and condemn him to death? These groups. And yet Jesus is walking right where he knew they would be. He's walking around, no fear, no anxiety, with absolute courage. And the leaders are blown away. They ask the question, by what authority? Friends, humanity has an authority problem. We do. Think about some of these issues that we see in our society today. Self-identity, gender, sexuality, marriage. What's the authority on that? Well, most people would say, I'm the authority. Myself. Others would say it's the Supreme Court. even entered into the church. I'll hear people talk about our church, other churches, and they'll say, well, I think it should emphasize this or that. Where is the authority in our lives? Jesus exposes the conflict. 
And it's the same today as it was back then. Look at what he says. He says, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 30 was the baptism of John. This isn't just the baptism. It was the whole ministry of John, which was pointing to whom? Jesus. Was it from heaven or from man? Beloved, this is the crux of our authority problem. Is our authority from man or from heaven? Let me ask you this. What is the ultimate authority in your life? So many of our debates about what authority is or what right and wrong is begin with the horizontal. The the issues of abortion often begin with the the ability of a woman to have a right over over her own body. The issues with marriage often begin with the horizontal of people should have a right to love whomever they want. The issues of gender often begin with the autonomy of a child or of an individual. Beloved, listen, authority begins with heaven. Now the reason why that is so difficult for us and for all of humanity to swallow is because of a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen and that is authority requires accountability. And that's what the religious leaders were struggling with. They're they're looking at this and they're saying, wait a minute, if we say it's from heaven, there's accountability. Then Jesus would say, why did you not believe in him and and me? And then they're afraid of the people. There's horizontal accountability because they all held that John was really a prophet and they revealed that they're only interested in themselves. They're only interested in human authority. They're only interested in self-preservation. 